Welcome to the How to Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm honored to have, forgive me again if I mispronounce it, Dr. Ramanan Laxman Narayan. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Who is an economist, but is specifically a drug-resistant economist, and he works, or directs, I should say, the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics, and Policy. So thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, share your wisdom and thoughts and knowledge with our listening audience. My pleasure. Well, specifically, I came across you when a friend of mine uh, sent an article about drug resistance and specific antibiotic resistance in animals and how that pertains to, you know, not only the animals, but the humans, our global economy resistance. It's just such an important topic that we kind of brush under the rug because people, well, at least I think doctors think that we need to prescribe antibiotics when people demand it, even though they, we know deep down that they really may not need it at a specific time. But I want to get this on a larger scale picture. Can you give us a little idea? First of all, how does an economist become interested in drug resistance and, and how does that all fit together? You know, that's, that's interesting. I actually trained as, uh, as an environmental economist and environmental economists would study, uh, you know, global commons issues like climate change, for instance, why it is that people choose not to carpool, why they all want to you know, drive around, even though there's this huge threat of global climate change that sits, uh, you know, that looms over us. And, uh, and the answer is, which economists have known for a long time and others have as well, is, uh, is what's called the tragedy of the commons. We don't take into consideration the small effect that our driving, uh, you know, say to, uh, you know, 200 miles, you know, to, for a sale or whatever, might have on, on the climate of, of the planet because we don't make that connection. <clears throat> and in some sense, uh, antibiotic resistance is exactly the same way. Uh, it doesn't matter how many statins you take or how much aspirin you take, it has zero effect on the effectiveness of aspirin or the statins for everyone else, but not so with antibiotics. When we overuse antibiotics, so even when we just use antibiotics, we help create resistance strains that then potentially put other people at risk. In that, antibiotics are more like climate change. The resistance problem is more like climate change. And antibiotics themselves fit into a category that's, that's very different. Uh, you know, many years ago, I first heard about uh, the story where uh, penicillin was very effective in treating gonorrhea in Vietnam until the U.S. Army got there, and then they handed out penicillin in all the, the brothels to keep the soldiers safe. And by the time the military left, uh, penicillin was completely ineffective in Vietnam. And in fact, it followed that resistance strain then followed uh, the military back to the US. <clears throat> and subsequently, um, you know, penicillin hasn't really worked in the US either. So that's, a, that's an interesting example of where uh, the actions in one place have global consequences. And, uh, you know, ever since penicillin has ever, never worked in Vietnam. So that seemed like a very profound story, just like, uh, I don't know, deforestation in some part of the world or, or overfishing or what have you. And to me, antibiotic effectiveness is the same as fish or trees. It's a resource that belongs to all of us and needs to be managed that way. Absolutely. That is a fascinating thing. So when, was there one particular area that really piqued your interest? Was that the story in Vietnam? Or I also know you've worked with malaria 
and some other things there. What was it that finally said, you know, I really want to focus my research and my time with drug resistance in particular? You know, it was exactly that. And, and after I heard that story, uh, the, the head of medicine at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle had, uh, you know, I had discussed this with him and he said, well, you know, we have a big and growing resistance problem. Can you help look at our data and help us find out if we could be using our antibiotics better? Should we be cycling them? Should we be using some less, some more? Are there rules that you can bring to bear from how people manage fisheries or how people manage forests to managing antibiotic effectiveness? And he gave me my first grant to study that. And, uh, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. That's, that's what really got me started. Fantastic. I live in uh, Washington, just outside Seattle. So it's a oh, really? beautiful okay. place. Yeah. <laughs> so interesting. So Ken, you're, you have a TED Talk from 2014, which I find absolutely fascinating. And I'll include that link for everyone to, to watch. And I encourage them to share this because I think there's something here that we also need to look into. Um, in particular interest to my audience is the use of antibiotics in animals. Can you give us an idea of how it's used and why it's used? Back in the 50s, um, you know, people figured out quite by accident that uh, particularly when, say, chickens were either undernourished or they lived in rather unhygienic conditions, giving them antibiotics uh, could help them, uh, you know, overcome those challenges and uh, get fatter faster. Mm. And uh, it just became an industrial input into production of poultry, just like, I don't know, giving them food, I guess. Um, and then it was found to work for pigs. It was found to work for cattle. So it worked out really quite well. Now, the problem is that um, over time, that kind of use of antibiotics uh, then overtook the human use of antibiotics. And today, uh, over three quarters of the antibiotics used around the world are used in animals, not in humans, and not even to treat animals that are sick. They primarily use uh, you know, in this sort of an industrial fashion to, to make up for not having, you know, hygiene and nutrition. Uh, if you think about it, that's not very different from how antibiotics might get used in a, in a hospital where the infection control is not great. So, you know, somewhere in the back of the mind, uh, someone in the hospital is thinking, it doesn't really matter the patient gets an infection, not that they want it to happen, but instead of putting additional money into infection control, you just sort of figure you can control it at the back end by giving them an antibiotic should they get an infection. Now, what we're realizing, of course, is that these are all bad ways to use antibiotics. We really should prevent infections uh, to the greatest extent possible, whether in humans or in animals. And that way we get to minimize how much antibiotics we use and therefore minimize the risk of resistance and therefore extend the useful life of these very, very powerful drugs. So how is, has there been a connection between the use of antibiotics in animals and drug resistance in humans? You know, the connection goes both ways. Um, so uh, people have done studies with phylogenetic trees to see, you know, how the resistance genes flow. Uh, you know, we live in, uh, we're like fish. We live in a sea of bacteria, right? effectively there's bacteria everywhere around us. And so when people say, oh, I'm scared of bacteria, I don't want to be around bacteria, that's a bit silly. That's like fish saying, I really don't like water. I don't want to be anywhere near water. You know, that's just too bad. 
Uh, <laughs> that's just the way it works. And, um, and it turns out that we're exchanging resistance genes with animals. We create resistance handed to animals. They create resistance handed to us through companion animals, through other, you know, through, through other animals. So this is like a free-flowing continuum uh, between us and them because we're all in the same ocean of bacteria. Mm -hmm. So um, can you isolate that as an effect? No, you can't isolate that as an effect any more than you can isolate, uh, you know, such an effect in the ocean to say this is where that particular chemical came from and then, you know, this is where it's spread to in the ocean. Once it's in the ocean, it's out there. And I think we have to see antibiotics and bacteria as really being uh, an ecological problem and not just a medical problem. Absolutely. So how much of an impact, if you feel, if, if people will cut down the use of, let's say, meat um, for food, can that have a, a very rapid impact? Because I know we are having, seeing some resistance and people dying from that resistance in the United States already. How rapid of an impact do you think that would occur? I mean, because I know you've also studied... Uh, epidemiology and all of that, what or how much would we need to cut down to have significant impact, do you think? I mean, I'm sure there's models that predict these things and such, but. You know, all use of antibiotics, whether appropriate or inappropriate, generates resistance. That's just the way, you know, the science works. So all reductions in consumption uh, will sooner or later translate into uh, into uh, uh, longer uh, useful therapeutic spans for, for antibiotics. Uh, the number differs. Uh, there are antibiotics that we've used for many years where resistance hasn't been noticed, and there are antibiotics that we've used just for a couple of months, and resistance has popped up very quickly. So there isn't a single answer to that question, but I think if we believe in natural selection, then uh, we surely must believe that anything which slows down the pace of natural selection is likely to benefit us. Um, that's just how it goes. And I like in your TED Talk how you do describe how Mother Nature will eventually catch up with us. So we may have some alternative interventions at the moment, but they are going to be short-lived because <laughs> Mother Nature will find her way to get what she wants. I am curious, you had mentioned in your article um, a few different strategies to help us decrease our consumption. Can you describe for those kind of an idea of what, what you were talking about? So I think it is important to recognize that uh, uh, meat consumption, much like driving or anything else, is a useful thing. It gives us protein. It's something which people like to have. But when taken to extremes, can have harmful effects for us uh, in other ways as well, but particularly when it comes to antibiotic resistance, that if people chose to eat meat three times a day, every day of the year, that's fine, but then it has ecological consequences uh, because raising that amount of meat does take a fair amount of antibiotics given the production systems of today. So what we've studied is what if we had caps on how much antibiotics were used to raise meat? What it could end up doing is raising the price of meat a little bit. Another alternative is that people just say, well, I'm going to eat a little less meat. And uh, it's not such an outlandish idea. The Chinese government now asks the citizen to eat less meat uh, to a lower daily average because of the broad ecological consequences there. And yeah, it, it impinges on individual sovereignty for sure, but so does asking people to drive less. So it's all the same thing. 
And what we're recognizing here is that what we do has these global consequences. I think that um, being mindful of the fact that our production systems today do depend on antibiotics for the meat that we consume is something that is really important for everyone to bear in mind. And even if that is done, I think then people will make the appropriate choice. And keep in mind that taking antibiotics inappropriately, now switching to medicine, is not just a consequence for other people. It has consequences for ourselves in terms of uh, you know, unnecessary side effects. Uh, many people are allergic to antibiotics. Uh, it's worth taking if it's going to cure you of something, but why take on a side effect if it's not going to help you in any way at all? And third, um, consuming antibiotics yourself has, at least for some period of time, a higher risk of generating resistance within oneself, mm -hmm. which then means that if that person gets sick, they're less likely to be treated with commonly available antibiotics. So I think these are things that people don't understand, and we've gotten used to the idea that you know, antibiotics are completely safe, which they mostly are, and they can be taken with no consequences. That's simply not true. Right. And I think people forget also the infection associated with that is C. diff kills about mm -hmm. 29,000 Americans annually. So that's an important consequence that people don't really think about. And all antibiotics have been associated with that, not just specific ones. Correct. And you had mentioned also, um, for example, uh, different types of infections that we can get that we're seeing rise, especially um, Campylobacter. My one of my three children, they're grown now, but the middle one ended up with Campylobacter and was actually hospitalized um, as a child when he was eight. And so, you know, those things, as you're seeing those resistance, that's as frightening as a parent. So we start thinking about it, it's just not consequences for ourselves, but for future generations. So if we want our children not to go back to the hundred years ago when we didn't have antibiotics, but I thought there was a really interesting story you told in your TED talk. And I know you're we're short on time here a little bit. If you could just share with us that first story of when antibiotics were first used, um, you had shared that, and it was really interesting. I think people will find that fascinating. Sure. Uh, but before I go there, let me just yeah. say that the other part which, uh, which we haven't discussed is this idea that, uh, well, what we now know is children getting antibiotics, that does put them at higher risk for uh, irritable bowel syndrome when they're older, uh, for, um, you know, for asthma, uh, certainly for obesity. And the evidence is really piling up there. And the obesity evidence is not rocket science. If we think that small amounts of antibiotics can make pigs fatter, why wouldn't it do that to small children? So uh, okay. I'd recommend a very good book by uh, Marty Blazer called uh, Missing Microbes. Uh, and Marty and his uh, wife uh, at NYU have done some amazing work at on figuring out how early exposure to antibiotics has all these later life consequences that we just haven't uh, we just haven't paid attention to. What was his last name again? I'm sorry, Dr. Marty. B L A S E R. Great. I'll make sure and find that and put a link too. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's a great book. Um, but back to the idea of uh, you know use of antibiotics for the first time. Uh, what most of us don't realize is that we haven't had antibiotics for that long. It was only in 1942 that the very first patient was treated using antibiotics. Um, antibiotics had been discovered in 1928 by Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin. But it took another 13-odd years to synthesize that penicillin in a form that 
you could actually then treat a patient with. He just found the mold, right? You can't, you have to recreate it and then actually make it in medicinal form. Now, there was a policeman in Oxford, as the story goes. His name was Albert Alexander. And on a day off from work, he was scratched with a rose thorn. And uh, he developed, uh, you know, a sepsis, which then spread to the rest of his body. Uh, he lost an eye. Uh, he was on the verge of dying. And, uh, you know, back then, I guess, uh, the rules for, uh, for uh, you know, treating someone with an unknown uh, drug were a little more lax than they are today. So they figured this guy's going to die anyway, so why don't we give them this drug? Um, it might have had impurities. It could have killed him. But they gave it to him just when he was really on the verge of dying. And on day one, he got a lot better. Uh, his fever went away. Uh, day two, you know, the infection started clearing from his face. Uh, day three, a whole lot better. They couldn't, um, they didn't have enough penicillin. So they would run with his urine across uh, from Radcliffe Infirmary to resynthesize the penicillin that he had excreted in pure crystalline form to give it back to him. Uh, they did everything possible. Now, by day five, unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately, he was getting a lot better. Unfortunately, uh, they ran out of penicillin. Yeah. Um, and this poor man died. Um, but what it did was uh, open people up to this absolute miracle, the idea that someone with an infection on the verge of dying could be brought back to life by an entity, a chemical agent, that went through the human body, didn't touch any of our cells, but went and targeted just these other living organisms living within us and just killed those off. Now, if you really think about it, that truly is a miracle, right? So how does this thing know that it should kill bacterial cells and not human cells? Mm -hmm. It is absolutely fascinating. And I think the importance of that story is to understand how quickly things have changed our views of antibiotics from a miracle drug saving lives to, oh, you know, as a primary care physician, I'll hear people, oh, I just need a pack. Uh, it'll cure everything. I was like, no, actually it won't. And actually, and there's, you know, in some communities in the United States, I, I am aware that there's at least a 25% resistance rate to Zithromax. And mm -hmm. it takes a lot of education on the physician part. I think it's very, very important. But there's so much more of a broader scale consequences to this. I think it, mm -hmm. we just need to start thinking and educating ourselves as physicians. There's a lot of things we're not educated on, nutrition mm -hmm. being one. Um, but two, also, you know, the consequences of everyday actions of lack of educating our patients. Mm -hmm. So very, very important. That is, this is truly fascinating. I feel like I could talk to you for a long time, but I want to be respectful of your call here in five minutes. So I will thank you again for your time. And I very much appreciate um, everything that you shared with our audience. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome.